I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Elizabeth Ray. And Tom Cruise is Mitch McDeer in The Firm. The 66th Academy Awards ceremony was held on March 21st, 1994, covering the movies of 1993. It was hosted by Whoopi Goldberg, and it was the Schindler's List year. Seven awards from 12 nominations, including Best Picture. Both Holly Hunter and Emma Thompson were both nominated for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress. Hunter gets Best Actress for the piano, of course. Thompson, lamentably, goes home empty-handed. It is a great example of classic mid-90s Hollywood excess, and what's weird is that for no good reason, you and I just watched the entire ceremony. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. For some reason, YouTube was like, hey, do you want to watch this 1993 award ceremony? And I was like, yeah, yes, actually, Uh, I do. I don't know how it knew that we had just watched The Firm. Occasionally, the algorithm just gives you something that you didn't know you wanted, but wow, you wanted it. Exactly so. There was a ballet dance to the music of The Firm. It was so yes. odd. <laughs> <laughs> Including a number of other scores, yeah. though notably not Jurassic Park. This was also, was of course, wild. a I... big Jurassic Park year. Yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of great movies. Let's let's kind of set the stage here. I'm going to read the nominees for Best Picture and perhaps Best Actor and Best Actress. And I just sure. want your gut take. I want, what do you think of this year in movies? And which do you think should have won. The nominees for Best Picture... Oh, I should do my voice. The nominees for Best Picture are (laughs) Remains of the Day, The Piano, In the Name of the Father, The Fugitive, and Schindler's List. That's such a wild list. I feel like The Fugitive is a weird outlier on that list. Like, The Fugitive was good. The Fugitive is the populist outlier on that list, but this is also the year of Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, Park, though. Like, how do you put... Yeah, I don't know. Jurassic Park was so great, but this is... I mean, the Oscars, we're talking about it even right now. They're always just weirdly, I, I don't know, they're, they're biased against movies that are big hits. I, I think it's, it's maybe even less that they have a bias against big hits and more that they are just in love with the narrative. I think the reason that Jurassic Park doesn't get nominated for Best Picture is that Spielberg is already extremely well represented. In all oh, of because, these lists. Yeah, that's because right, this is Spielberg his... did Schindler's yes. List as well. That's so, that's crazy. Isn't it just that's a, a phenomenal year. thing? Yeah. yeah. I, I think In the Name of the Father is kind of the weird outlier. That there one I don't know too. anything about. Yeah. Oh, have you never seen uh-uh. it? Uh-uh. Oh, okay. That's, that's a... the one that Emma Thompson was nominated for. I remember from the clips. Yes. But... Uh, Jim Sheridan's also nominated for uh, Best Director for that one. And... Was it Daniel Day-Lewis again? Was he there for yeah. that and... Age of Innocence? That seems insane. Daniel Day-Lewis is there for In the Name of the Father. He's not there for The Age of Innocence. The Age of Innocence did come out this year and is represented, but he is not nominated. And it is not it's nominated for so any much. Like, really big It's like big everybody's awards. there for two movies. Pete Postlethwaite is who I was thinking, of course. Oh, for yeah, yeah, yeah. The He's great. The Father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's one of the weird things, right? It's for a year that is very much, you know, pre-franchise movie making. We are not, <laughs> we get Jurassic Park, but we don't get one of the Jurassic Park right. sequels. We're not yet in this idea of annualized sequels to big movie franchises. And yet, you're right, it's a weird year of confluence and convergence. Yeah. Because so many people are represented in multiple films. It's, it's a bananas year. I, I loved the <laughs> ceremony. I loved everything that is represented by that ceremony. Yeah. I think Whoopi Goldberg is so terrific, I think, she as was a terrific. host. Yeah, she was great. Capable of absolutely navigating the need to be self-effacing mm-hmm. and somewhat iconoclastic, but also very much on the side of the Academy, right? Like it's mm. not, you're not giving a, a rebellious monologue. 
at the Oscar <laughs> ceremony. It's it's just terrific. This is the year that Anna Paquin wins supporting actress. This yes. is why Holly Hunter does not win supporting actress for the firm is because she is beaten out by the 11-year-old Anna Paquin for the piano which is an incredible performance. Yes, and they were sitting next to each other in the ceremony, so Holly Hunter got to be so excited for her when Anna Paquin was just absolutely speechless. It was pretty charming, actually. Alongside Jane Campion and Jan Chapman, the producer, mm-hmm. too. Just yes. very good year. Yeah. What do yeah, you think of, of the piano? We haven't really had the opportunity yeah, to talk about it. <laughs> Weirdly, in this Tom Cruise podcast, <laughs> the piano hasn't come up very often. <laughs> Uh, that's a really good question. I do love the piano and I love Jane Campion, but I don't know that I like it. Does that make sense? Like yeah. I love, I-, I love it and respect it so much, but it also leaves me just a little bit cold. I, I mean, the men in it are so terrible, which mm-hmm. is the point of course, but I still don't find it comforting to watch. Um, I find it's just See, so upsetting. I don't you know? think that that is the point. I think that this is the weird breaking point for me with The Piano, which is a film that I absolutely love, but I love it because of the women. Mm. I think that The Piano as a film loves Harvey Keitel. Which is so weird. Which is so weird. Because I, don't know. I can't. No, he's awful. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a strange one. You know, the one that really stood out to me watching it was seeing uh, Stockard Channing be nominated for Best Actress for Six Degrees of Separation, which was so good. I love Stockard Channing. I don't know Six Degrees of Separation, though. No, I don't know it at all. Yeah. But it was it was lovely to see her on stage being, being <laughs> right? nominated for something. And Deborah Winger, of course, for Shadowlands, because it's also the Shadowlands year. It's insane. <laughs> I saw Shadowlands, too. Shadowlands feels a million years old, like a movie from, well, I say, you know, four or five years earlier anyway. It feels like a late 80s movie, much more than an early 90s. You know, there's a lot to be said of the, you know, we're talking a lot right now about the Oscar nominations that were just released and the screenplay categories because Bonkers. the adapted screenplay and non-adapted screenplay Doesn't shenanigans any are sense. just crazy. But the screenplay categories in 1994 for the movies of 1993 are just revelatory. I think they reveal so much about what was happening in the industry at the time. Best screenplay written directly for the screen. So this is best original screenplay, The Piano, which wins, Dave, in the Line of Fire, Philadelphia. It's also the Philadelphia oh, that's year, right. you it's guys. Philadelphia too. And Sleepless in Seattle, which Sleepless. are oh my god, how good is that? Right? What? It's so many movies. But that's incredible. The what a year! Adapted screenplay list is Schindler's List, The Age of Innocence, In the Name of the Father, The Remains of the Day, and Shadowlands. So we were we were deep in Merchant Ivory. I think yeah. is, is what was happening right there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Adapted just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, especially considering this year in Maestro. Like, why does Shadowlands get adapted, but Maestro gets original? Well, Shadowlands is based on a book, though. Oh, was it? Was yeah, it a book? Yeah, I think, okay. I think it was actually right. based on... It wasn't on, just a yeah. person's life. No, that's... Is, but usually a person's life also. Because usually movies that are about a person's life are adapted from a Happen source to be book. Like a bio, and it's a loophole yeah. that Maestro is not adapted directly from a book. It is adapted from, you know, the events of his life. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you're right, it is inconsistent. Well, that's the thing about the Oscars, right? It is ruthlessly consistent in its inconsistency. (laughs) The rules are stark and clear and will be obeyed and make no sense. It is very because we say so. Yeah. 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 What was your take from the Oscar ceremony in general? Did you feel good about the movies of 1993? Did you feel good about where Hollywood was? Did you feel good about representation and voice and diversity? Diversity of the sorts uh, yeah. of films, perhaps not diversity like of the political diversity in, in the films. way that we would want. Yeah, yeah. The, the, of, of the genres and the sorts of films, yes, there was a great deal of diversity. Um, some racial diversity, although not a lot. Everything's still very straight 
for sure. Very... Which is wild because this is the year that Tom Hanks wins for Philadelphia. This right. is his best Right, but that was, Oscar. I guess that's what I mean to say is like, when we weren't straight, it was stridently so. Tom yeah. Hanks' acceptance yeah. speech was so lovely and moving. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess in that sense it was dated but still progressive, which is what I would expect and hope from Hollywood yeah. at basically all times. That, that is... There are always the outliers who are like the artists who are pushing forward, you know, the future that they want to see. And there are always the ones who are like, well, big yeah. guns, big kicks, let's go. You know, it's, it's that strange dichotomy at the heart of the Academy, I think, that it wants to be progressive and wants to be seen as being progressive, but it is also very conservative, self-congratulatory and, and self-laudatory and, mm. and very convinced that it is already the best. It is already yeah. like the most important and best and goodest thing in the world. So really, how can you improve on that, right? Like in a powerful sense, where can you go? Absolutely. <laughs> how can you gild this lily still further? Every lily gilded. That's the promise of the Oscar that's, ceremony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Long-term listeners to the show may suspect that because we've launched into this discussion of an Oscar ceremony from 30 years ago, that perhaps we're not that enthusiastic about the firm. Perhaps we're trying to push off the inevitability mm. of discussing this film. Do you want to give me just a quick pricey of your feelings on The Firm? I love The Firm. This was a great movie. Yeah. It's a little too long, but it's great. It's it's much too long. It's much too it's long. <laughs> much too long and much too slow. And you know who agrees with us? Is Sidney Pollack, the director of this film. He had three months of post-production to edit this film after the That's end of Principal much. Photography, which is really not much. Mm. Not for a film of this ambition. Right. And he said after the fact that, yeah, it is just, it is too long. It is too slow. He would have loved another three months to really tighten up the edit and make the film what he wanted it to be. Yeah. But for all that, it's kind of a blast. And I like it. Kind yeah. of the film that you just don't get in movie theaters anymore, I feel like. This is now the realm of prestige TV. I was going to say, yeah, it it's definitely felt like prestige television. Weird or to even be, just like in an eight-episode miniseries or something. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah, it's weird to be watching this the week that True Detective returns to our screens. Sure. Right? It yeah. feels very much like that is where... HBO is exactly where this story would happen now. You're right. You, I'm afraid, are carrying the burden this week of the trailer of the game, trailer game. <laughs> for two hours and 20 minutes of an incomprehensible John Grisham plot. Are you ready? Are you feeling confident? I'm not feeling confident, but I will, I, I, I will pull it out. All right. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have guessed that a firm in Memphis full of old, misogynistic, racist white dudes would be bad at its core and at its heart. Mitch McDeer didn't, and it almost cost him his life. Follow Tom Cruise, Gene Hackman, Gene Triplehorn. Two jeans. I love it. A pair of jeans. A pair of jeans. Damn it. That was the joke. <laughs> Holly Hunter, David Strathairn, Ed Harris. God, it's a really good stacked cast. In... <laughs> <laughs> the John Grisham novel adaptation, The Firm. Dun, dun, dun. I love it when the trailer guy starts editorializing about the quality I of the cast. I cannot help myself. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it is an insane cast. Though. Stacked cast. We'll yeah. get to all of that, but we really have to start, of course, with Grisham because... This is the beginning of an absolute phenomenon that will, in many ways, define both literature and cinema in the 1990s. John Grisham is a 
powerhouse of an author. He's born in 1955 in Arkansas. In 1959, his family relocates to Memphis, Tennessee, where he will later work as a lawyer and then serve as a state representative, and then just write some of the biggest novels of the 90s and the early 2000s. He has a book on the Publishers Weekly Top 10 list for every single year, from 1991 to 2005 inclusive. And then again, from 2007 to 2011 inclusive. He has written the best-selling book in the U.S., In 1994, with The Chamber. In 1995, with The Rainmaker. In 1996, with The Runaway Jury. In 1997, with The Partner. In 1998, with The Street Lawyer. In 1999, with The Testament. In 2000, with The Brethren. 2002, with The Summons. 2005, with The Broker. And 2008, with The Appeal. Oh, and 2011, with The Litigators. His publicists say that he has sold more than 400 million books, which is two-thirds the number of J.K. Rowling. Wow. And almost exactly the same number as Stephen King, except that Stephen King has been writing and publishing books for 15 years longer than John Grisham. (laughs) Wow. It is a phenomenal track record. And in addition to that, of course, the movie adaptations of his books are huge. Yeah. And his success is so fast. His first book, A Time to Kill, is published in 1989 with a very modest print run of 5,000 copies. I didn't realize A Time to Kill was Grisham. That's awesome. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. The Firm is published in 1991, and The Pelican Brief is published in 1992. And then in 1993, movie adaptations of both of those films are released. Awesome. To a cumulative worldwide total of $465.5 million. Wow. That's the dream. Nice. You know what's great about this is that if I saw a picture of John Grisham right now, I would not know who that man was. No. He's I, not a distinctive looking fella. I just think that's cool. Would you would you can have like a name that everybody knows, but a face that no one knows? That's freedom. I mean, you don't worry about paparazzi. You don't worry about everybody looking to see the next thing that you're going to say about whatever political thing is happening. You know, you don't have to make a statement about things all the time. You don't have that kind of Taylor Swift celebrity where just everyone's sure, watching sure. you. But you have respect. You have a half billion dollars in the bank. Yeah. <laughs> certain level of security there (laughs) yeah i don't know just the freedom to make whatever you want or stop making whenever you want and buy your house or houses and be a philanthropist and just live your life man that's cool so did you read a lot of grisham back in the day no 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 i don't think i ever read any grisham i listened to one on audiobook with my grandmother once and i've was always curious which one it was, and I think it's the street lawyer. You just said it, and that must have been oh, that okay. must be the one because that's a latter entry. Yeah. It was a latter, yeah. Because I'm like John Grisham, like okay, <laughs> when we were listening to it, based on what very little I remember from that car ride, I think that must have been the one because I feel like all of the people that he was being uh, that he was representing, I suppose, were houseless people. I think that was like oh, the, interesting, that was sure, the whole sure. theme of the thing. So I yeah. think that I have read that one. Though perhaps it not. It seemed cool. That is a little know. late in my personal Grisham run. I probably around 96, 97, maybe even a little later than that, certainly jumped in and read his first, I don't know, six or yeah. eight books and just devoured them over the course of a summer in much the same way as I did with Stephen King, in much the same way yeah. as I did with Michael Crichton, you know, just kind of sinking into that milieu. And I will admit, a lot of his books, particularly after the first few, really do start to blur together yeah, a little bit. It's just more of the same, which is still something I find, you know, 
I, I respect the hell out of, I should say. It is engaging. I, I think, yeah, I mean, he is in many ways, you know, the poster boy for journeyman writer, right? Yeah. <laughs> he is like the kind of writer that I think we both, in some sense, aspire to be. There are, I think, a few things which distinguish and elevate Grisham's writing in particular. It's not perhaps that difficult to do what he does on some level. It's not perhaps that difficult to write, you know, a fairly generic legal thriller. But Grisham, for me, has the ability to populate his worlds with really convincing and compelling sketches of minor characters. Yeah. I think his major characters often feel a little thin and maybe a little flimsy. Sure, A yeah. little bit like they're cardboard standees yes, more than they yes. are actually realistic, you know, people. But his minor characters, because they need that much less development, oftentimes really pop on the page. Yeah, that's what I remember from the audiobook, is yeah. that it just being so full of so many characters and me being so impressed with the guy who was actually doing the voice work. Because oh, really? <laughs> I could just see all of these different characters as he like gave yeah. voice to them. It was really cool. The other thing that really works for me is that Grisham is obviously a man of, of real principle in his yes. actual life. And really believes in a moral good. He mm -hmm. really believes in orienting his characters properly, challenging them, putting them through, you know, moral and ethical tests, but then ultimately having their redemption or, or their conclusion be somehow connected to what he apprehends as a greater moral truth. Yeah. And I find that really, you know, genuinely inspiring. Honestly. Yes. It's, it's a good vision of public servitude, I think. And though obviously we may have our doubts about the legal system and how it operates, he believes in the principle of a legal system. Sure. In a way that is somewhat inspiring, even if it's, you know, very flat and very affirming of, you know, yeah. entrenched modes and modalities of power. What do you think of Grisham's politics? How do you feel like those hold up? I mean, I don't know that much about the man himself. You're right. Sure. He is still, you know, fairly enigmatic, despite being one of the most successful writers of all time. But the politics that come through in his books, yeah, I mean, there is a skepticism of large government. There is a skepticism of large bureaucracy in general. He likes neighborhoods and mm. small communities where everyone helps one another, right? He's kind of got that in common with Stephen King. He's kind of got that, like, boomer liberality uh, to him. Ah, yes, yes. He believes that. Boomer it, liberal it's kind is of, exactly what Grisham is, yeah. It's a kind of go-along, get-along kind of philosophy mm. that as long as we stay away from the very powerful and the very wealthy, then really everyone can benefit. Mm. He obviously believes in the power of smart, educated individuals, by which I mean smart, educated men, yeah. to really effect change in their communities. And that, that is where the virtue lies. Like that, mm. that is the point of being smart and educated, is to improve your communities. Which, you know, I, I can't really condemn him that much for that political philosophy because it's not that far away from my own personal political right. philosophy. But I, I feel as though, yeah, I feel as though there's a good heart in Grisham's work in a way that there isn't in Crichton's work, right? There's yes. that caustic yeah. kind of mean-spirited totally. cynicism throughout Michael Crichton's work that I just can't really get along with. And there's a rah-rah patriotism. There's like a, a, a curdled patriotism at the heart of Tom Clancy. Yes. And there's even like a kind of mean-spirited cynicism sometimes in Stephen King's work. And I'm equating these writers, of course, just because these are the big writers the big of the yeah. 1990s. Yeah. These are the guys who kind of define masculine fiction in particular through the 1990s. So of those... I'm pretty comfortable saying that I think John Grisham has the best heart. I think he has the best intention. I think that's probably right. Best intent. Yeah. yeah. I think that's probably true. And there's also, you know, that quality of, of being hardworking. He's writing his books while he is serving in the House of Representatives in Tennessee. Oh, is that true? Yes. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So he's, he literally shows up early and writes every day. 
until it's time to start work. And then he works all day and then goes home to his wife. It's amazing. I, I know. I'm having like starry eyes right now. I've been thinking a lot about a writer's life again, just the last couple of days, <laughs> which is insane because I'm like, I'm getting ready to go to LA again and to work on a film. That's so exciting. But I th- maybe it is all the Oscar stuff. The Oscars just, I don't, I don't know. There's something polarizing about them that bring out just the best and the worst of the industry. And I don't know. It I makes think me kind of want to go hide in a hobbit hole. Right. <laughs> It's that when you think about the industry, mm. it maybe makes you go and, and be a little thorough. It makes you want to go off and yeah. hide in the woods and just write because it's such a solitary endeavor and you don't have to collaborate with anyone. But I love collaborating. I know you too, do. No, I know you thing. do. I know. And if you did go off to your own personal Walden, you would be fretting by the end of the week it's and true. wanting to go and make a movie or make a stage show or something else. I just want to be <laughs> a little bit of everything. Everything. <laughs> a Renaissance woman. A Renaissance woman, I suppose, yes. So Grisham writes The Firm in 1989, but publishers aren't terribly interested. Uh, A Time to Kill has not really set anyone on fire just yet. But Paramount producers John Davis and the notoriously hot-tempered and reportedly abusive Scott Rudin both get their hands on the manuscript for this book and both send it independently to Paramount exec Lance Young. He likes the manuscript and buys it for a deal valued at $600,000. Davis and Rudin have to work together to produce the movie, and they go straight to Tom Cruise on the set of A Few Good Men and tell him that they want him to star and direct. Wow. flatly turns down the offer to direct. Good for him. Which is really interesting, honestly. Yes, that shows humility, which is frankly rarely seen. Yeah. But he is, of course, fascinated with the role of Mitch McDear, who could honestly have been written for Tom Cruise. Mm. Davis and Rudin then shop the movie around. They go to Kevin Reynolds, director of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. They go to John McTiernan, director of Die Hard and Last Action Hero. They go to Ron Howard, director of Far and Away. But they all demur. In the end, Sidney Pollock, most famous at this point for his 80s movies Tootsie and Out of Africa, Signs on Whoa. to direct. Yeah. Those are two very different movies. I haven't seen Tootsie, but I have seen Out of Africa, and I quite this loved it. This is the thing about Pollock, is that he moves from genre to genre with a great deal of purpose. Mm. It, it's He's clearly interested in tackling each film very much on its own merits and does not bring, it seems to me, a great deal of his own personal style. Rather, he finds the style that is innate to the project. That's really cool. You know, which yeah. I think you can also say of The Firm, though... Again, it's it's really hard to think about directing this film without feeling that the pacing issues yeah, just just dog your sense of what the film is and what the film does throughout. Mm-hmm. Screenwriter David Rabe is hired to adapt the novel and takes a couple of really enthusiastic swings, uh, by which I mean adds gunfights, uh. multiple, multiple gunfights, including, I believe, at the end of his first draft, Mitch McDear goes to the firm and shoots all of the other lawyers. Oh, my God. Yes. Paramount replaces Rabe with a writer called Daniel Pine and then subsequently with another writer called David Raphael, who is a well-respected script doctor. He is told, adapt a book, keep everything the same. What are you doing? <laughs> Except he has to go in and rewrite uh, Pine's draft where they had rewritten Avery Tolar as a woman, because Meryl Streep had already been cast to play the role. Wow. Yeah. But they decide that that dynamic isn't working, so they reset back to the book's original position and hire Gene Hackman. Yeah. I love Meryl Streep, obviously. There was a dearth of women in this film, obviously. But Gene Hackman's really special in it. I can't imagine it without him. It would have to be a completely different character. Completely. Completely. Interesting. I'm sure it would also have been good. 
By March of 1992, though, after two years of active development on this project, Pollock still isn't happy, so he hires Hollywood veteran Robert Town, the screenwriter of Days of Thunder, who spent three weeks doing a page one rewrite. And if The Last Star in Hollywood has revealed anything to mm -hmm. us, it is that three-week page one rewrites are way more common in the 80s and the 90s <laughs> than I ever would have guessed. It feels like every single script is stumbling to the finish line, is yeah. stumbling to that first day of it's principal so photography. It's so hard to write a script. It's right? so hard. Yeah. Shooting starts in November of 1992 in Memphis. They shoot for three months until moving to the Cayman Islands in February to cool. D.C. then in the middle of March and a couple of days of pickups in Boston at the end of March so they can mm -hmm. shoot Harvard exteriors mostly, yes, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Still snowy up there. You cannot yeah. fake real snow. You I love it when you can't. go on location. You just can't fake it. Really just gorgeous. go. That yep. break to shoot in the Caymans must have felt wonderful I'll to everyone. bet. Yeah. <laughs> felt wonderful to me. I was just watching. Right. The movie's released over the 4th of July weekend in 1993 to mixed critical reception, but it demonstrates immediate traction with the cinema-going public. It ends up spending 26 weeks in theaters and winds up the third most successful film of the year behind Jurassic Park and The Fugitive, above Sleepless in Seattle and Mrs. Doubtfire. It is still the most successful Grisham adaptation, and there are lots of them. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. And I mentioned how far out I am now on Grisham. I haven't read a Grisham novel in maybe 15 years, mm. but I'll tell you this. Last year, a sequel was released to The Firm no way. called <laughs> The Exchange. Yeah, picking up the life of Mitch McDear 15 years after the events of the first book. So wow. I think I'm going to read that. Yeah, why not? <laughs> So you mentioned earlier how stacked this cast yeah. is, and we have to get into that a little bit, but we're also going to have to be brief, and I'm sure we'll forget someone at some I'm point. certain, unfortunately. Yes. Let's start with bona fide Hollywood legend Gene Hackman, why don't we? Let's, and I'll tell you why I want to talk about it, is because my whole life until I swear to God this moment watching The Firm, I didn't really get the Gene Hackman thing. I didn't really, really understand why people loved him so much. I thought he was maybe just a guy's actor. And I was like, I don't know. Maybe because the first thing I ever saw him do was Lex Luthor. Because when yes. I was a kid, that's yes. what I've watched him. So that's I always his, just. That's basically his entire 1980s too. Right? Yeah. He is huge in the 60s and 70s because he really comes up with New Hollywood. He is he is the New Hollywood guy. Like the French Connection is maybe the most definitive New Hollywood movie. And I've never seen it. Yeah. So, yeah. So his early stuff I just hadn't seen. And then I saw, what, Enemy of the State in theaters, which was also He's like him calling back to... Well, he is, but He's it's just like so a different... <laughs> it's a thing that I would not have noticed or appreciated when I saw it in theaters at, what, 16 or however yeah, old I was yeah. when I saw it. Yeah. So, no, he's out for most of the 80s just making the Christopher Reeve Superman films in which he plays, right. as you say, Lex Luthor. And he is not terribly good in those films, I didn't I would feel say. that way, he, but he's also... He's miscast more than yeah. anything else, I think. But his real you know, return to, to stardom is Mississippi Burning in 1988. Didn't see that either. Which sets the stage for this, frankly, hell of a run playing kind of antagonistic douchebags through uh -huh. the 1990s. After The Firm, he's going to be in Wyatt Earp in 94, both Crimson Tide and The Quick and the Dead in 95, Extreme Measures in 96, and Enemy of the State in 98. Yeah. And then he retires from acting in 2004. 2004 was his last film, though he is still, by all accounts, in like rude good health. So wow. there are constant rumors that, that someday he'll come back and do another movie. But yeah, it's been 20 years now. Well, I have to say I liked him very much in this mentorship figure. And then I loved him when we got him in the Caymans just being all starry-eyed for Abby. Yeah. He was so lovely. Yeah. I was really surprised by that. I, I think I had it in my notes, like, 
is Gene Hackman actually excellent? Is he wonderful? What has he been the whole time? I, I didn't know. I think Gene Hackman is actually excellent. Is actually wonderful. I think maybe has been the whole time. Yeah, I think he's so terrific in this. There are so many moments of lightness and yeah. levity. He, I think this is a well-written script, though it's a very. little, you know, patchwork. It's a little cobbled together, yes, obviously. Yes. From, from Line by lines. line, very well-written, yes. perhaps structurally, not so much. Yeah, but I think that even when he is handed good lines, he mm-hmm. still manages to find something to do with them. He manages to yeah. elevate them. The line that he gets at their first lunch where he's allowed his little rebellions oh. is so good. Such a twinkle in the eye. And yet yeah. he's capable of turning on a dime Yes, and bringing yeah. that menace. Just a fantastic, fantastic performance. Let's move on and talk about Gene Triplehorn Mm -hmm. then, an Oklahoma girl. Did you know that? Turns out I did not know that. Yes. Born in Tulsa in 1963, a graduate of Juilliard. She graduated in Group 19 because Juilliard just has this weird thing of measuring their incoming groups. They just literally number (laughs) each incoming group. Yeah. So she graduates in Group 19 alongside Laura Linney and Tim Blake Nelson. It's a pretty prestigious group out of Mm. Juilliard. She works a little in the stage and then really makes her movie debut the year before the firm in Basic Instinct. She's the uh, police psychologist in Basic Instinct. But this is really the one that sets her up. She'll appear in Waterworld in 1995, Sliding Doors. She's great in Sliding Doors in 1998. Mickey Blue Eyes in 1999, (laughs) if you remember that one. They do, yes, that's right. But really, she will find a home on television. She'll appear in Big Love and Criminal Minds and The Gilded Age, which I know you watched fairly recently. I do watch The Gilded Age. That's right. Yes. She has a nice performance there. I remember her now. Yeah. Is she, and I want to say this as positively and as gently as possible, is she perhaps more of a TV actress? I think she is more suited for television. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I can't put my finger on why exactly, but something about her does not stand out in the way that it ought to. I don't know. She is nice and lovely. There's a theatricality. I think, to her performance that Mm. works for me, particularly in the beginning of this film. I was really charmed by her for maybe the first first act of this film, honestly. Mm -hmm. The moment when Mitch comes home and turns up the music and then whispers to her the whole story in her ear. And her reaction is so big. So huge. It is so like (laughs) soap opera stage play huge. Yeah. It's true. And obviously some of that has to be laid at the feet of Sidney Pollock for directing. I was going to say, but, at some point the director had to say, can we take that again? Yeah. But yeah, but also I've been there. Uh, and I sometimes... need you to give me a third as much <laughs> as you are giving me right yes. now. But that is the kind of magnitude that I think plays better on television sometimes, than it does in, yeah. in film. She's, she's hitting a kind of a tone mm-hmm. rather than hitting something that is like perhaps more naturalistic. But. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think really strong here and a good a good chemistry match, I think, for Cruz. Oh, I disagree. I think they had oh, no really? chemistry at all. It was really disappointing to me. I just didn't feel they had any. Very brother-sister energy. I do think they lose it quite fast. But there's some stuff right at the beginning when they're still very much, you know, when Mitch is still a real wife guy right yeah, at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, the, the one scene in the apartment and maybe a little bit yeah. on the rooftop after the barbecue event. Yeah, yeah. They have a little bit of something. How good does Memphis look in this movie? Pretty flipping good, actually. It look yeah, amazing? it looks great. Yeah, they I really would go shot there for Memphis. Right now. Yeah. 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 Uh, it was interesting how they shot it. Memphis famously being a black city, like, yeah, yeah. and has been doing so beautifully, leading the way in a lot of ways. And shot so white, but on purpose. Like, they're really showing 
that the firm is not to be yes. trusted right from the beginning where they have like two black actors, maybe three, I think. Two of the, it's three, yeah, because two are servants like in yep. full on like plantation style servant regalia. Yeah, when they go to the Quinn house right before they learn that yeah. the other lawyers have died in the Caymans and, and they are met at the door by a black housekeeper. Awful. It's chilling. But awful on purpose and chilling. Th- that's yeah. it, yeah. No, completely and then there's like... The kid doing flips in the street, yep. and there's the guy playing blues, and you're like, "Whoa!" Here's the thing: about I that. see what you're doing. Well, everybody's eating barbecue. Yeah. Oh. I cannot find evidence online that Tom Cruise really did that backflip down the street. I don't think he did. It's shot it's as shot though like he, he didn't. didn't. Yeah. But if you watch it really carefully, it really—if it's not him, then they found an excellent stunt performer who is a very close body match to Cruise himself. I don't think it's him because if it's him, you don't shoot it like it's not. That's what I think. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. But also everything we know about Tom Cruise is, oh, yeah, no, he learned how to do four backflips down the street in Memphis. <laughs> and he maybe could do one or two. And they were like, this is pretty good, but it's not as like yeah. good as it's we need to be or whatever. such a know. weird moment. It's a weird moment. He's a Harvard nerd who also <laughs> can perform mat routines yeah. like he's at the Olympics. <laughs> so strange. Yeah. Let's continue our theme of weird connections to the state of Oklahoma with Mr. Ed Harris, who was enrolled for a short time at your alma mater, the school that is, I'm going to say, two and a half miles from our recording studio right now, the University of Oklahoma. Something I always forget. He always shows up on those lists of alumni. And I'm like, wait, what? But because he's he's not really. He's not. He didn't graduate. No, he he performed in local theater here in Oklahoma, Mm. here in Norman and also up in Oklahoma City. And then, you know, went out to L.A. to enroll at the California Institute of the Arts, graduating with a BFA in 1975. But really, I think Oklahoma can take credit for his performances. You know, it's funny you were talking about, you know, having this moment of revelation with Gene Hackman. I had a very similar moment of revelation with Ed Harris this time. Not about him being good. Because uh-huh. I think he is always compelling yeah. and is always great on screen. But about him maybe being a decent guy, because you hear these mm-hmm. stories of Ed Harris, right? Famously cantankerous and extremely like hard-edged hard to and work with, professional, right? right? Mm-hmm. Does not give an inch on set to anyone. There are famous stories about him working with uh, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio on the set of The Abyss, as we mentioned back when we were discussing Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves over in the bonus episode, I'm sure. And probably even The Color of Money, too. So he has this reputation as being real ornery. And I wonder how much of that is true and how much of that stems from just a real professionalism, that he does not come to set to play, he comes to set to work. Mm, Interesting. And I found myself really engaged by him this time. Do you think he's good casting in, oh, in yeah. this film? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Ed Harris. I find him very sexy, especially at this particular stage of his career. Uh, he's, and he's, he's always compelling. really bold. He's really bold. At this point. I like really bold guys. No, but I mean, he's really bold <laughs> I did want him movie. to have a hat on when yeah, he was like outside something. in the cold. I was like, son, please. Oh, my God. You're going to catch your death of cold. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I like so well about Ed Harris is that he can give you this like awful hard ass menacing grimacing guy, but he can also give such warmth and openness and uh, compassion to his characters. He's got real range. I like that. Yeah, I think so. And and if nothing else, can walk into a diner set, sit down and just eat like four saltines in a row <laughs> with no water, no nothing. Like what? What? How? What? And still speak at the end of that, Ed Harris? What are you doing? It's such a weird character choice. I didn't notice. No, I will, I'm sure. He will go on from The Firm, of course, to be brilliant in Apollo 13 in 1995, to be brilliant in The Rock in 1996, Mm -hmm. to be 
fantastic in The Truman Show in 1998 mm-hmm. and on and on. And, of course, we'll uh, have another tour of duty with Tom Cruise in Top Gun Maverick in 2022. Yeah, cool. And may well come back for the announced sequel who can say for sure? And uh, I th- I'm looking at my notes. I think that's it for the cast. I don't think there's anyone else that we have to talk about. Is there? <laughs> I, I feel. <laughs> I see what we're doing. I see what we're doing. Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter. Do you the... want to talk about Holly Hunter, Alistair? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> the extremely brilliant Holly Hunter. Uh-huh. My absolute number one screen crush of all time, Holly Hunter. Yes, <laughs> I would, in fact like to talk a little bit about Holly Hunter. She's born in Georgia in 1958. She attends Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and then moves to New York City where she shares an apartment with Frances McDormand in the Bronx as they are both trying to make it. Frances McDormand also considered for this role in this film, which is so different, such different energy. I can't even. Hard to imagine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliantly, Holly Hunter gets her break in 1982 when she finds herself trapped in an elevator with playwright Beth Hanley, who is so immediately charmed uh-huh. that she goes on to cast Holly Hunter in Crimes of the Heart and a play that I've never heard of but absolutely need to see called The Miss Firecracker Contest. <laughs> I love that. Hunter moves to L.A. in 1982 and then really breaks in 87 when she appears alongside Nicolas Cage in the Coen Brothers' Raising Arizona and is nominated for an Academy Award for her unstoppable role in broadcast news mm. that same year. In 1994, as we said, she is nominated for Best Supporting Actress for The Firm, which she loses to her co-star from Jane Campion's The Piano, Anna Paquin. Mm -hmm. But she does win Best Actress that year. She'll be nominated again in 2004 for the movie 13. She's also in Crash, the weird, sexy David Cronenberg one, not the one about racism. Oh, okay. And in A Life Less Ordinary and in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And of course, in The Incredibles, giving probably the best voice performance in Pixar. Pretty great. An insanely high bar. (laughs) I think that she is just spectacular. She is in the firm for less than six minutes. She has less than six minutes of screen time. It is one of the smallest, you know, per minutes on screen roles that has ever been nominated for an Academy Award. But she shows up in this David Lynchian excess. It is fantastic. I completely agree. I think she's wonderful. I think she's luminous. I think she's great in this movie. I I hate that they give her such terrible wigs, but you know what? That's fine. <laughs> That's not my best feature. <laughs> Shut up. Oh, my God. I will kiss you right now. What is it about her, though? I, I don't Serious know. Serious question. Why is Holly Hunter so magnetic on screen? Because mm. she's been in some terrible things. She right? has. Yeah. I revisited A Life Less Ordinary not so very long ago with you. <laughs> and that is a, a film that I was really fond of for a really long time. And that is a bad film. <laughs> It is a bad film with some real high points and some Mm. real charm, but it is a bad, bad film. But every second that she is on screen, I think she is magnetic. Yeah. What is it about Holly Hunter that is so compelling? She's fantastic in Zack Snyder movies for crying out loud. (laughs) I wish I could say and harness it. I'm sure the whole world does, but she has magic. Just just an unstoppable on-screen persona i think mm-hmm. and yeah i will yeah we'll watch her in anything and i do think that she is genuinely brilliant in the firm in a role that is yeah. i i need her to somehow travel back in time and appear in david lynch movies like, yeah from you know it 2000 seems wild on. that it's, she's yeah. not yeah she'd be perfect for lynch yeah the other actor that we should mention probably right now before we get into it not an actor that is particularly uh, beloved of either of us just because we're ignorant of most of his work but we should definitely talk about Tobin Bell who plays the uh, Nordic assassin the blue-eyed blonde-haired guy because oh. that is Jigsaw from 
as of this recording, nine different Saw movies. I guess eight oh. different Saw movies and a Jigsaw movie. Yeah, that we're is, not horror yeah. people, so we wouldn't He has know. had a, a very powerful late career surge with that role. I thought this was weird casting for him because of the way the character was described as having like super blonde, almost white hair yeah. and these weird blue <laughs> eyes. And you see him and you're like, that's the worst bleach job I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just not what I the expected. The charter captain would definitely have to do that. He had a really weird he bleach job. a really bad yeah. bleach and, job. And contacts, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It is It is a very odd so bit of strange. casting. Yeah. Dan Brown does it too. We have a We have this thing where we like to make crazy hitmen like albino featured I'm like, why would you do well, that yeah the, he needs the, to not be identifiable that's like the main yes. job of a hitman you know what i mean the, in and out nobody sees him nobody remembers him the albinism in the da vinci code i think is maybe a little bit different from this guy who is just finnish i suspect I or at least yeah. you know of, of nordic <laughs> extraction but you're right it is a weird thing that we return yeah. to throughout in the late 80s and into the 1990s of having yeah exactly that guy right that that tall northern european yeah viking guy who's yeah, coming for you kind of cold kind of impassive yeah. you know Totally. It, it, it is a weird recurring archetype. Yeah. I don't know why. Hmm. <laughs> Anyone else stand out to you? I mean, we've got Gary yes. Busey playing the role of uh, 200 pounds of cocaine in a bad suit. We do. <laughs> we do. And he's good and funny, I think. This is my favorite Gary Busey he's performance. He is great. not an actor that I like, I have to say. He's this not an actor that I connect for, with. But this is, yeah, you're right. Show up for two scenes. Oh my God, we didn't mention David Strathairn. We, we have absolutely. We, well, I mentioned him in my trailer game, but we haven't yes. talked about him in this. I don't think he's very good in this. I'm very sorry to say, I love him. I love him. This is a I'm weird role for him. It is a weird role for him. What 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 doesn't work for you about that? The performance? voice work. Interesting. Why does he have so much of a southern accent? Well, because well, they're both what West Virginia coal mines. Yeah, presumably right? because he never left, right? I, right. I'm trying to put my finger on it. I don't buy them as brothers. I don't like his accent very much. He. I like him. Nah, I was going to say best in his last moments with Holly Hunter, but that line is terrible. Yes. I love your crooked little mouth yes. is way too you sure have a pretty mouth. And it's just, oh. you can't deliver it like that. <laughs> well, no, I don't like I it either. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's just where my brain immediately went with that West Virginia accent that he had. I don't know. I, she was so great that it doesn't matter and yeah. it gets buried. The opening scenes that we get, though, when, okay, let's clarify this. When Mitch first goes mm -hmm. to the prison and we're introduced to Ray as a character, we get this one scene that is split down the middle by a cutaway to the firm, which I think is a really bad choice. Mistake, yeah. Because we're just trying to cover the exposition. But you can do that in a cut, you guys. Like we have cinematic language where mm -hmm. we can cover that elision of time there. I think he is so warm. And I think that he allows Cruz to really rise to the material in that sequence. Yeah, I'm I so see what you mean. I'm so interested in what Grisham is doing with Mitch McDear as a character. I'm so interested in the complexity of this character's backstory because he's anything but a boilerplate hero, right? He's anything right. but just a conventional leading man in this kind of story. He is so haunted and complicated and driven and contradictory mm -hmm. in a way that I find really interesting. I, th I think that Mitch McDear is a really great character. Yeah, I don't know that the film exhibits that properly or explores that properly. Yeah. I, I wonder how much of it is what Tom Cruise does with it and how much of it is just in the ver the specificity, I suppose, of yeah. the writing and the dialogue. I thought such a standout line was, well, my father died in the coal mines and he goes right past it. Yeah. And you learn 
so much about that character. That's exactly in it. No time at all. We get that beat, and then when we get the beat with Abby much later, where he's talking about, "I just want you to have everything you gave up," and yeah. that's such a great line. And then we circle around and do like a minute worth of exposition. Yeah. On, we just we say the subtext. Yeah, and. That's really disappointing. It's a really weird like deflation mm. of these stakes that we have built between these characters because now they're just explaining their life stories to each other and yeah. it doesn't work so well. It's, it's a dynamic that I'm still very interested in, but the execution, I think, falters there somewhat. But I like everything that gives us friction, everything that gives us insight on who Mitch McDear is. When we get to the beach scene where the girl is being accosted by yes. the guy. Every heroic impulse in you as a storyteller wants Mitch to charge in and deck that guy and rescue the girl because that's the dynamic that's being set up. And the fact that he doesn't is not a mistake. Yeah. It is a real exploration of his character. He's not that guy. Yeah. It, it is really interesting and kind of, I think, fundamentally mishandled by the movie. But what's left is still a degree or two more complicated than what we yeah. usually get from a Tom Cruise protagonist. Yeah. I would agree. What do you think of Cruise in this movie generally? Before we move into the beat by beat and really start <laughs> pulling this film apart, <laughs> what do you think of his performance here? Generally, I think he's great. Uh, there are some moments that are maybe a little bit undercooked for me, mm -hmm. but ultimately I think he's good. I love how confident he is when he's doing, when he's guessing what's in the envelope. Yeah. Who's that actor also? We didn't talk about him. Deep Throat from uh, X-Files. Jerry Harden. And Hal Holbrook, of course, yes. sitting right next to him. Fantastic character Great. actor work. Great work <laughs> we need, happening. We need literally 40 <laughs> middle-aged white men from the South. Can we do that? Oh, we can? Fantastic. Excellent. They're doing it. It's yeah. perfect. Anyhow, in that sequence, uh, Tom Cruise is so confident, or rather Mitch is yes. so confident. And then to contrast that with how sweaty and beat up and this is awkward he is with the mob guys in the end is really lovely. Again, I think this is an editing problem, but we hit those transitions just a little hard. When he comes back from D.C. and he goes immediately to the partners to tell them that he talked to the FBI. Yeah. And he's so confident and so cool when he's in the room. Then we literally and cut. And like sweats on the staircase. Go, it's yeah. too much. It's, it's too, much. too much. It you, is too much. Like, and too soon. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and show and, it later when he gets home and he's pouring himself whiskey. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of that stuff is just a little, yeah, a little yeah. fragmentary. But maybe. not his fault, but, I think. No, yeah. not so much the performance, I think. No. Is this also, and I feel like I've said this for the last couple of movies, <laughs> and soon we're going to hit a peak because I know where we're going. And we're not going to stay here for very long, but... This is the hottest he's ever been. Uh, this might, I, I, I like Far and Away Cruise quite a lot, but but yeah, he's certainly handsome. But, so you have him like at the top of the bell curve between Far and Away and here, and maybe I don't know exactly where we're going, so we'll have to see. But yes, probably. Next week, do you not know what movie's next week? Uh, I'm sure that I do. <laughs> Interview with next the vampire. Interview the vampire, which he is not my type in that movie. No. This is not my thing. So yeah. Yeah, brawling Irish guy. It's a real fast Much progression clearer. from here for the rest of Tom Cruise's 90s because we're mm -hmm. going to do Interview with the Vampire next week. Then we're going to do Mission Impossible. Then we're going to do Jerry Maguire. Then we do Eyes Wide Shut. I seem to recall him being very cute in Jerry Maguire too. Yeah, okay. So we'll see. I don't know. So with all that said, let's get into what's sure to be a effortless, breezy progression through this plot, right? <laughs> There's really not that many wrinkles or complexities to deal it's with. so simple. Is it wild, just to jump all the way to the end, I guess, and break the format of our show completely, <laughs> is it wild that most of the climax of this film is Tom Cruise in a very small room on the phone? That he is yes. not doing like 
until he is doing all of the action stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's not doing a lot of action stuff. Straight up Mission Impossible for a while. It is weirdly straight up Mission Impossible, (laughs) which I guess, right, that is the justification (laughs) for him doing backflips on Beale Street, right? Is to to motivate our understanding. Oh, no, he's also a crazy gymnast. Yeah. So that he can totally swing from pipes and. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, it's so good to see the Tom Cruise run. It is. Here we are in episode 16 of our show, and we finally got it. This is it. Full formed, full fledged. This is the run. The run. He's so good at it. He runs great. It's it's unearthly. It it's, it's looks just, awesome. It defies description. Yeah. He is just the best He's at so running. He's so compact. Yeah. It's so weird. It's good. Though apparently not quite as fast as Gene Triplehorn, who is significantly faster <laughs> than him running down the suburban street, she even though he's going start, full though. out and she's not really <laughs> trying that hard. No, but honestly, I think that there is a real trick to it because he is in the back of the shot. When we're focused on her running, he is mm-hmm. in the back of the shot. He is clearly doing his Tom Cruise run, but he's just not gaining on her, which means that he is able to like deliver all of that energy, but also modulate his pace. Wow. Is, or maybe he's just slow and he makes it look fast. That could also be it. Maybe yeah. all these cameras, maybe it's all just trickery. Maybe these cameras <laughs> are you know speed ramped just to make it look like he's fast. Maybe all these sets are built at two thirds scale. <laughs> That's mean, but funny. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into it. Let's introduce ourselves to Mitch McDear, a kind of a a hustler, right? A poor kid coming up. A hustler. He hustles in the sense that he is... He's a hard worker and a high achiever. A hard worker and high achiever is perhaps, yes, particularly how loaded the word hustler is for us here in this podcast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're right. A hard worker, a high achiever, a graduate of Harvard Law who is being headhunted by the most prestigious firms in the country, and he's a real wife guy, which makes him perfect for Bendini, Lambert, and Locke, a firm in Memphis, which really prides itself on being like a family Mm. in the late-stage capitalist sense and not in the cult sense, although a little (laughs) bit in the the cult cult sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how quickly we get into it because we have a couple of other meetings and we get this montage sequence of Boston exteriors and we get that sense of, you know, life as, as someone who is just emerging from Harvard Law mm-hmm. into a market that wants to eat you, but then reward you very well for yeah. being eaten by this this legalistic corporate machine. We get the introduction almost immediately to the fantastic Hal Holbrook, who is just so good yeah. as Oliver Lambert. And yeah, I it think... doesn't feel immediate, though. I feel like we get so much story and exposition before we land in Memphis. And yet the credits are still rolling. That's it's really interesting thing, how it's right? done. The pace of the film is kind of broken, not in a large scale format, as it has been in so many of the films that we've discussed lately, mm-hmm. but really moment to moment, edit by edit. We start every scene just a little early and we end every scene just a little late. Mm-hmm. And it feels, yeah, glacial in parts. Or yeah. Maybe not glacial. Maybe that is an exaggeration. But we certainly feel as though we are taking our time. You're right. Even though I think the intent is to move quite quickly. And it's also underscored by this very unusual soundtrack. Yeah, the soundtrack is strange. I like it. I've decided that I really dig it. Okay. Although it is, there's something quite 90s about it. But I wonder if that's because of this movie. If it's like a Grishamy 90s, I don't know what. I No, it feels like it comes from television to me. It feels like it comes from like... It does like, feel prestige TV a yeah. little bit. Not prestige, prestige, but like, you know, no, 7 like o'clock on Thursdays or early, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that, that's certainly the thing. The entire thing is basically scored on one piano, which I think works... Most of the time, I think there were some times when we were trying to set a dramatic tone and the piano is just too twinkly and fun. Yeah, and it then is fun. <laughs> when we get to the actual action sequences at the end of the film, it gets very, I mean, there's only so much you can do with one piano. Yeah. Right? There's only so much you can do to really build tension. It gets very like thunderous and hammery yeah. in a way that doesn't quite 
have enough nuance, but overall, it's, it's a very distinctive sound. And yeah, mm-hmm. I do like it. But yeah, it puts me in mind of, I'm not even, I, I can't put my finger on quite the right reference, but like something like 30 something, something like, you know, early mm-hmm. dramas, you know, kind of mad about you kind of sure. for the sitcom yes. side of things. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's kind of got some of the, yeah, just, just I get it. TV in that era, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. In any case, Mitch signs with the firm for $96,000 a year, plus he gets his car, plus he gets his low-interest mortgage on his house, plus they, in a couple of scenes, will repay his student debt for him. It's supposed to be such a hot car, but God, it was a bad time for cars. It's still just a bad time for cars. We've inherited bad 80s cars, and we are not yet at... Well, God, even no, even late nineties cars are still I don't know kind when of ugly. They start to come back. Yeah. yeah. We'll we'll track it as we move forward. Okay. We'll see. What is the first sexy car in a Tom Cruise movie? We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's ninety six thousand dollars a year, by the way, in nineteen ninety two, two hundred thousand dollars a year today. So that is there a hell of go. a package for That's someone who's nice... just fresh out of college. Yeah, right? yeah. That's nice. What do you think of their home here in Memphis? Charming. Isn't it? I really like it. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't care for the interior decorating too much, except despite myself, the lace curtains. I really like the floor to ceiling lace curtains. I don't know why. Uh, But the rest of it, maybe, you know, is a bit early 90s. Like, I just need. Yeah. Yeah. My mother always had like ducks and geese on the wall. Anybody else? I don't know. That was a big thing. But yeah. So we have Mitch and Abby settling into their new home. Mitch gets up early the next morning, goes into the office to begin studying for the bar. Then we get that cute little montage of the entire staff of the firm, I guess, stopping by his office to offer both their expertise and mentorship. Yeah. And also to tell him that no one in the history of the firm has ever failed the bar. It's a good comedic beat. It is a good comedic beat. I actually thought that they were going to turn it on its head and subvert it a little bit and say no one fails the bar because we see to it that it's like fixed or whatever, <laughs> but they don't have that kind of reach, it turns out. But that was no, part of what I thought it was. They bring it back at the very end. And I think that this is this is hit a little harder in the book than it is in the movie. When Ed Harris asks him how he thought of hanging the company out on the mail fraud charges and he says it's in the bar. Like, yep. They made me study for it's it. It's nice. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. We also here get the introduction to Avery Tolar. He really like stresses that, that terminal syllable on mm. his last name. Avery Tolar. And we slip out for an early lunch. And so far, a little flabby in the edit, but everything's crazy charming. Everything's really firing on all cylinders for me. Yeah, it's totally working. I love this set piece that they've got for the firm, too. It's just so ornate and overblown and over the top. It's fantastic. It looks awesome. uh, Again, I know we've already said it once, and we'll probably say it a couple more times, but Memphis really comes out of this movie looking real good. (laughs) Though, I have to say... (laughs) <laughs> because of the scene when they are in their car, in their new car going for a test drive. Yes. I went and looked up because it is such a weird detail. And I know that you will already know about this because I think that mm. everybody already knows about this. But the pyramid on the skyline. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did know about that. I yeah. didn't know about that <laughs> until I started watching this film. Yeah. Would you like to sketch the weird best fishing store pyramid in Memphis for our listeners? Is that what it is? That's I didn't what it realize. is. Was it, is it a Bass Pro Shop? It is a Bass Pro Shop. It wasn't intended to be a Bass Pro Shop. It was originally opened as an arena. It is, depending on who you ask and depending by what measurement Mm -hmm. you go by, it is the ninth or tenth largest pyramid in the world. (laughs) 
Like, including, you know, the pyramids. Right, <laughs> like, right. Yeah. No, I've seen it before. I've been to Memphis before, and I've driven through Memphis even more times. But I think I just assumed, I was like, oh, yeah, because Memphis is a city in Egypt. I see what we're doing. Yeah. And right. drove on by. I and don't think it ever occurred to me what was actually inside of it. It was built in 1991 as a 20,000-seat arena, and it kind of goes out of business in 2007, and then since 2015 has been a very elaborate Bass Pro Shop. <laughs> With like a hotel and an archery range sure. and tons of stuff. Like, Glamping, probably. <laughs> it's a very strange thing. That's odd. That I kind of adore. Yeah. But I'm thrilled that this film gave wow. me the opportunity to go and do a little spontaneous sure. research on Big Pyramid in Memphis? Question, question mark, mark, question mark, question mark. I always add yeah. the question marks for Google. It's only polite. <laughs> This leads us directly to we're we're intercutting between the Lots lunch with Avery film. and the unpacking at the house, mm-hmm. and we kind of get our introduction to the fabulous Barbara Garrick, who plays Kay Quinn. Yes, who has this line in this moment as they're unpacking. It's the South Abbey. We encumber you with hospitality. <laughs> so true. So we correct. We encumber you with hospitality. There are so many great lines. I think it's a <sighs> very smart script. It's, I have the word "smart" written here probably four times. I'm very tempted now, just by itself, smart to go period. back. And I don't know what I was referring to. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So these are just tone piece right. notes and commentary that you've got mm, here. Yes. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'm very tempted to go back and reread the book. Now, if I had the time yeah. to do it, I would go back and reread the book just uh, to see how much of that comes from the original prose. But that feels very authentic to me. We encumber you with hospitality. Mm-hmm. We get the visit to the Quins, and this is where all at once the tone of the piece yeah, changes. Yeah, darkens. And it changes twice in very quick succession because uh-huh. Mitch and Abby go to visit with the Quins for dinner ostensibly and they are met at the door by the black housekeeper. Yep. And all of a sudden all of this display of wealth feels gross and yep. artificial and like a facade mm-hmm. over something that is much uglier. Much more sinister. And then just when you think you're getting it we zag again because we have to reveal that two of the lawyers from the firm have been killed in the Cayman Islands. In a mysterious boating a explosion. mysterious boating explosion. Right? That's, two words that don't normally right? go together. Usually you would think they just went scuba diving and there was some kind of trouble and whatever in a cave and I don't know. Some kind of there shark attack. There are lots things. Sure. Yeah, who knows? But a boat explosion. <laughs> Alternate title for the film I didn't mention. Sidney Pollock was considering calling it boat explosion exclamation point didn't quite work out with Mm. the studio though and then we get this scene with quinn outside where the the sprinkler is spraying on his legs what do you think of that it was weird uh i mean after the fact it works i think once you realize what's going on and this idea i like the idea that all of the associates who work at the firm don't understand what the firm is until it's too late and then it really is too late Yeah, yeah so i do think going back that was interesting but I don't know. It was between that particular moment where he's so still and the sprinkler hits him and the two creepy ass twins at the funeral. Yep. Feels like a different movie it's, for a it's minute. Also that transition as he's sitting in the spray of the sprinkler and he's obviously, you know, distraught. He's obviously, you know, being mm-hmm. pummeled by this news, by, by the death of his colleagues. And it's the end of that scene when he tells Mitch that he just has to drop off his forms and the firm will repay his student debt. That's yeah. all unfolded yeah. in the same scene. God, crazy. It's, such a great tonal turn mm. like this film could also at this point turn into vampires it could also yeah. turn into something like weirdly supernatural it could do any number of of pivots around this exact same fulcrum i think and it's kind of prosaic that we go to oh it's a corrupt law firm that 
yeah. handles the money for the, the mob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I kind of wanted there to be some kind of like Illuminati secret in the basement, but okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. I haven't read all of Grisham. I wonder mm-hmm. if Grisham ever, you know, in a post Dan Brown world, yeah. I wonder if Grisham ever pivots. Seems like he would. And it's a ghost right at the end of the book. <laughs> That would be amazing. <laughs> it's a ghost. <laughs> oh my God, I want to read that. So we get the funeral and we get Avery and Abby trying to like outmaneuver each other with politeness, which I take to be like a very Southern thing. Although, does Gene Hackman read it to you as Southern in this film? Does he read to you as though he's trying to give Tennessee? Maybe a little bit. Yeah? More Southern than Midwestern, certainly. And he's certainly okay. not giving me East Coast. So I hadn't really thought about it too much. But yeah, come to think about it. Yeah, he's given big Texas energy. That's exactly what I was getting yeah. was Texas. Rather than rather than, you know, Memphis and like, you know, Tennessee, I was getting something yeah. that was a little bit but that kind of works because he is just a little bit out of step with the rest of a the bit. firm, that he's on the fringes of the firm in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. I think you could explore that dynamic and that that character much more fully than we do in this film, because of mm-hmm. course it's not really his story. But sure. yeah, I'm I'm charmed by the story of the guy who's been on the inside for 20 or 30 years you know from there we move into another montage of decorating the house decorating the office mitch staying late at work of course and then all at once we're in the diner all at once yeah ed harris shows up Mm -hmm. a great and again creepy creepy yeah 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 there is a lot of lynch here now that you mention it that's interesting that was Lynch doing stuff? Well he, well, he was, I guess. Lynch, this this was... 1993 is like Fire Walk With Me. That's what I thought. Yeah. 92, I think, is actually Fire Walk Somebody With Me. So 1993, he's this. probably still very depressed having you yeah. know, failed so badly at Cannes with <laughs> oh, Fire Walk With Me. A great film. Mm. The Cannes jury. Wrong then as it is wrong now. Uh, well, in any case, it seems like somebody who worked on this watched Twin Peaks. Yes, I mean, we certainly get the references to Americana, right? To, yeah. to the, the trappings and the the conventional tropes of our vision of contemporary America, right? We're in a diner. He's having the coffee. He's the doing Elvis the truck driver for the some Elvis reason truck drivers. is very Lynch. Very Lynch, but also very like Coen Brothers. Like it's got sure. that kind of yeah, sensibility yeah, yeah. to it. Too. The Holly lighting, Hunter Holly Hunter, 100%. Completely Lynch. Yeah. Absolutely. That whole kind of, that, that, that whole, what, office, I suppose. Her and Gary Busey and yeah. oh, no, all absolutely. of the lighting Lit with and the everything neon that happens yes. there. That's, and then you sh- that's like, the most Lynch. The yes, most definitely. Lynch, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that could be Mulholland Drive. That could be happening mm-hmm. down the street from, mm-hmm. from uh, Silencio, yeah. Do you feel that all of these disparate elements come together? Do you think that this film, when it is done, when you, when yeah. you have finished watching it, do you think that it is a thing in your brain or is it you know, four or five disparate mm, things in your brain. That's interesting. Does it Ultimately, I do feel that it comes together in the fact that it's just like, it's just a vibe. Like it's just a cool, almost that Southern Gothic we were talking about earlier meets like there's just a little bit of noir mob story. There's a like, there's a lot going on, but I'm just here for it. I don't, yeah. I'm, and maybe that's it is that I just like it. So I'm, I'm fine with the disparate elements, but they are certainly there. And I could see where they would throw a person out. Yeah. I just That's like them. The other Lynch aspect, I guess, are the uh, somewhat sure. genial mobsters right at the end. It's very Twin Peaks, The Return. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's loaded. <laughs> Those mob guys who are like straight out of central casting yeah. mob yeah. types. Like, okay. <laughs> Mitch is obviously shaken by this meeting with Ed Harris, as you would be. Sure. And returns to the office to kind of investigate the deaths of the other lawyers at the firm these four lawyers in 10 years yeah 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 it's enough to leave him kind of shaken and Mm -hmm. he's there all night so that when he returns home we have this fight with abby where she's still bundled up on the couch and very like 
kind of simplified, right? She's kind of reduced in her complexity to she's, just be a shrewish yeah. housewife at this yeah. point. She's great at the she's great at the beginning. She's great at the end. Well, I wouldn't say the end, at the climax, she I has guess. Moments, yes. I think, yeah, for sure. But everything between here and now is awful. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. Though we do here get to explore this idea of poverty being the wound that you can never really heal, being this mm. like burden that you carry with you even when you have escaped it. That that being poor, growing up poor in particular, yes. is just a shadow that's going to be on you for your and, and not to pull back the veil too much. I know we both talked about yep. this on other podcasts, but you and I both grew up poor. Yep. And it's still a, <laughs> it's still very... a shadow that is cast, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I get that part of Mitch, I think. Mm-hmm. From there, we transition out to our trip to Grand Cayman, which is, I mean, just gorgeous. So the movie actually shoots on Grand Cayman, which is why it looks so stunning. And because it shot on Grand Cayman, had mm-hmm. to include a small disclaimer in the final credits of the film. Did you read the disclaimer? I did in the final not. Credits of the film? I'm yeah. interested. It's really cute. Quote, the producers wish to thank the Cayman Islands government and His Excellency Mr. Michael Gore, CBE Governor, for their cooperation in the making of this film and acknowledge that the Cayman Islands have strict anti-drug and money laundering laws, which are rigorously enforced. <laughs> That's hilarious. I believe that that is what you call a suspiciously specific denial. That is, but I love it. <laughs> Thanks to the Cayman Islands, who definitely care about other people's tax laws and financial transparency, in case you were wondering. That's amazing. I mean, it's it's a gorgeous sequence, right? The, the Cayman oh, Islands gosh, just yeah. luminous mm-hmm. on screen. Did you get any cocktail flashbacks through this? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just it did look so fun. Like, how cool to go and shoot in the Caribbean. From there, and it's funny that you were just talking about the mobsters from Central Casting at the end of the film, because uh-huh. here's the mobster from Central Casting in the middle of the film. <laughs> this is Sunny Caps. It is just a straight-up mafioso, right? It's just that yeah. performance that we've seen hundreds of times at this point yeah which i think it's fine like it's it's whatever for this film it's fine what do you think of this interplay here between avery and mitch because we're really trying to sell the fact we get the line at the end of the sequence from avery when he says protege have you ever been one i've never had one love it so good it's all good and sharp and smart this is a great sequence everything that happens in the caymans i think is brilliant i think it's great i think so too i really like it and it really helps that we're again i'm just going to always say this i love it when we shoot on location it's just better it's more real it's more plausible i just like it so we get the picking up of the mystery threads here i Mm. suppose we get uh mitch going to investigate the boat charter place that's going to come back so many times in this film that it feels i don't know maybe a little artificially constructed and then of course going to explore gene hackman's secret closet full of bankers boxes with very meticulously labeled files (laughs) which is good he drops his red stripe beer Yeah. Oh, interesting note about this film, by the way. It led to a 50% increase in sales of Red Stripe in the United States. Yeah. Wow. Really turned up the numbers on that. I can fuck with a Red Stripe. Absolutely. From time to time in the the right circumstances. In the right circumstances. Absolutely. Is there an umbrella at my patio table? Then I probably want a Red Stripe. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. So he drops his Red Stripe bottle in the secret closet, closes the door, and pretends like it didn't happen. And then we never come back around to to that. Never come back to it again. Doesn't, yeah. I think the only thing that we're maybe supposed to infer here is that to some extent, Gene Hackman knows the whole time that this kid knows something. It feels like Gene Hackman has a sadness about him, which is his knowing that this kid's life is getting completely screwed up. The sadness of Avery, I think, is gorgeous throughout i do too i think particularly in his scenes with abby later in the film obviously when they really come to the surface yeah 
I, I, yeah, it's such a brilliant performance. It's it such really a brilliant is. performance. It really is. I, like I, I want to this... be here for Meryl Streep doing it, but it's something so different then that I can't really imagine it. It, it, it would have to be just such you a fundamentally be, different character. We were just talking about this. What's that? Is it would be the character from Under the Tuscan Sun. Remember when she sees the woman in the fountain who's doing the whole like the Dolce Vita dancing in the water and the white dress thing and she takes her home and she's like, oh, this is the woman I want to be. And then later on we get that she's actually quite sad and lonely. Yeah. It's it would be that. And that's interesting. I think that's exactly it. I think that would. Yeah. I think that's a really great match. And we would miss then, though, the two women being the ones that come to the Caymans and like pull the rug out from under this very masculine firm yes but there's that question over you know how you resist the lure of the patriarchy and preserve your own femininity and like at Uh, what cost uh uh there's a uh lot of crunch there that's yeah Yeah. that's potentially at least very interesting yeah it's true from there we go on to the bar when credit to him mitch very politely turns down that girl very politely very politely yep setting clear boundaries of consent which is good to see Mm -hmm. then he goes out on the beach and we get into much more dubious consensual Mm. waters here yeah we kind of alluded to this earlier but i think that this is flat out bad i think that this is flat out extremely bad i think it's obviously you know problematic Mm -hmm. i think there's a the way that Mitch's character interacts with this situation is at least interesting. It does at least give us some perspective on who he is as a man. As I said mm-hmm. earlier, that he is not the hero. He's not the guy who rushes Run in, even punches. though he's quite the athlete. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't backflip in and then. But yes. it perpetuates. And, and here's the thing. It perpetuates a gross idea about sex workers and a gross idea about rape victims and the victims yep. of sexual assault. And I understand that the film, in some sense, is deliberately perpetuating those stories right. because they have a narrative power over people like Mitch. Mm-hmm. But you're still doing the thing. Yeah. And I don't think that you get a pass on that. It would take two minutes to sit down and come up with five better and more interesting plot lines yeah. for this character in this circumstance. I agree. And and I find it silly. Well, I shouldn't say silly, but it just leaves me cold that when... Abby finds out about this, she's ready to completely leave him in their entire marriage as though he had just murdered a person. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, but it was a one night stand in the Grand Cayman Islands. Like you can't you can't just maybe talk through that. You, you can't know, you can't say maybe this is the privilege of our position in two thousand twenty four rather than nineteen ninety three. Is it? I think there's maybe more of an assumption now that if you go to Grand Cayman overnight, you're probably just going to have sex with somebody. I don't know. Maybe you should. I feel like (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I would have wanted something more old-fashioned and conventional about Abby in order to make her to motivate her reaction. What's more old-fashioned and conventional than this? Yes, exactly. You're right. Beforehand, wanted an explanation. I would have wanted her to be no. She's actually staunchly Catholic. Like sure, yeah, Boston Catholic, right? Like, like I guess he doesn't come from Boston either. But I would have wanted something in her character that would have motivated that a little more. You're right. We don't get it. So after returning home, Mitch goes to visit with his brother Ray. This is his introduction to the proceedings, which is fine, and I think it works out. And I like very much the idea that. Mitch is going because he wants help rather than 
because he's feeling guilty about sleeping with this woman on the beach mm. or because he's just feeling stressed. He's actually going to try and like work the problem. He explains the situation yeah. to his brother and his brother gives him guidance, which is go and see Gary Busey. He's in a different <laughs> film, but it is just and down a different the hall. state. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. The, the elision of space and time right. in this film is a little wild, mm-hmm. but... I'm here for it, nonetheless. Uh, and this is it. We, we get the introduction to Holly Hunter at her lynchiest. <laughs> so, Alistair, tell me, does Holly Hunter work for you in this film? <laughs> I see what you're doing. <laughs> it is, though, weirdly a loaded question because she is giving so much of a performance, mm-hmm. despite the very brief amount of time that she spends on screen, that it would be easy, I think, in the hands of another actor to try to give a facsimile of this performance mm. and just be too much in every direction. Yeah, yeah. But Holly Hunter has that impossible ability to always land her performance in a very human and and relatable space. And I'm not even necessarily thinking just about this sequence, the introductory sequence, or the sequence when Loman is assassinated, is murdered. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking of the scene in the diner later when she's so frightened. That's when she's so great. Yeah, but I think that's the moment. That's the clip so that they played at the Oscars. Complexity to what she's doing. Mm-hmm. I think it is an absolutely incredible performance. And I'm not surprised by that because no. I love Holly Hunter. But <laughs> nonetheless, it is so bracing mm. to experience the full breadth of it. And and yeah, it, it feels like, you know, the, the trite screenwriting uh, aphorism that every character should feel like the main character in their own story. Sure. And yeah. No, Holly Hunter is the main she character does. in this film. Yeah. Like, absolutely is. There's, there's another version of this plot. And honestly, there's another version of a John Grisham novel. He has written about characters <laughs> like this where she is the protagonist and, yeah. and the story unfolds beautifully. Yeah, Does she work for you? Much more important. She really does. She really does. It is a bit over the top. It is more character actory than other performances that are happening in the film. But I think she's such a breath of fresh air despite that. And I, I have in my notes later, like Tammy greater than Abby. Like she's just great. She's I mean, so dynamic. So yeah. she, it, it, she's very well written as far as like, yeah, she has goals she's moving the story forward like like if there's another protagonist in the film it's her and i do think yeah. i think she's great she has all that complexity in her backstory her relationship with elvis that they're married for two years yep. then she wakes up one morning and she's too old for him uh, throw that out in one line and that's just mm-hmm. a reality that she lives in and it's, they got married when she was what'd you say like 18 19 si- no she's 16 when they get 16 married when they they've get been married. married for two years and she wakes up and she's too old for awful him. Yeah, no, awful, but right? Interest, yeah, no. Oh. But thrown out in such a casual way. Yep. But you still feel all the complexity mm-hmm. of it in her characterization. I, th- I think it's, I mean, this is, as we've said many times now, a stacked cast. Yep. I think wall to wall, the performances are great. Mm-hmm. I think Gene Triplehorn is probably the weakest link. And that's really because the script fails her in the middle of the film Absolutely more than anything so else. Yeah. And I think she is terrific at the beginning and pretty terrific at the climax, mm-hmm. too. There are just so many great performances, and Holly Hunter still, I think, stands out. We should talk about Wilfred Brimley. Can we talk about Wilfred Brimley in the performance of his career? Yes. Wow. so spectacularly threatening. He is great. He is threatening. Who would have thought that the diabetes guy would be threatening? This is what I'm saying, right? Known as being basically the textbook definition of avuncular. Yeah. A friendly, relatable man who gives this steel-hard performance at Mm. the heart of this plot. It's fantastic. Yep, it is. That's right. And we kind of mentioned Gary Busey earlier. It is a very cocaine performance. I like the writing I like it. very much. I like it. 
Yeah. It works. Uh, he agrees to take on this uh, investigation. Mitch goes home to an increasingly suspicious Abby. We cut back to Lomax and he is immediately, uh, yeah, executed by our yeah. pair of assassins. Sure. Uh, the albino assassin who is not albino at all. How does Tammy work for you as a witness to this horrific crime? Like, genuinely horrific. The it fact that, that he is shooting pieces of Lomax off as yeah. a way of extracting the information from him is yeah really she's of his ear no yeah. she's she's fantastic yeah. the whole it's just good again it feels almost like another movie but i like that movie too yeah i'm just having a good time and speaking of transitions here all of a sudden we're in dc we're at the tax law seminar and we start oh, playing yeah. real cloak and dagger stuff here <laughs> as mitch is led out to the mall to meet with denton voiles of the doj another great character actor performance ed harris is right there it could have just been ed harris <laughs> but we decided no we need one more guy yep, just to round out the cast bench. yep just fantastic. This is where we basically get the plot laid out, that the yeah. firm is corrupt, that it is serving the mob, that they want Mitch to gather evidence and then testify in open court. And furthermore, they're dangling the possibility of Ray's release over him. And I think that the conflict at the heart of this story, the way that it applies pressure to Mitch McDear, is absolutely masterful. Perfect. It's really good. Get him on the horns of a moral dilemma mm -hmm. and then make it so that it, whichever way he goes, he loses. Yep. It's... Just masterful work. It is. It yeah. is. And then seeing him think his way out of it is very satisfying. Yes. That's extremely Grisham as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he returns to the firm and we get this great scene right at the heart of the film where he goes to the partners and tells them that he has talked with the FBI. Yeah. And kind of lays it all out. Holds enough cards to his chest yeah. that he has like plausible deniability and can continue to work the case as it were. But also comes clean enough that there's no suspicion hanging right. over him at that point it's good he then goes home to abby and tells her exactly what is going well most of what's going on he doesn't tell her about the girl on the beach just yet yeah but he turns up the music and whispers in her ear and a really beautifully shot sequence yes. i think that is somewhat undercut by this is where we lose abby's characterization i think this yeah. is where she turns into a much thinner version of herself she runs down the street we get the tom cruise run trademark. it's a great run it's yes. such a great run it's so great <laughs> And then we really just start piling on incidental details. We have Mitch fighting with the photocopier in the morning because the firm is now tightening security. Mm -hmm. Tammy shows up with the fried egg sandwich and the instruction to meet her in the diner. She identifies the assassins who then immediately show up in the company of Wilfred Brimley. Oh, who, yeah. They get out of the car right then outside. Yeah. yeah who, that's good. And they politely take Mitch out. To some godforsaken place. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that this is shot in Memphis. This this feels like it might have been part of the DC pickup because it's so cold wherever they are. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, That's it was the middle thought. of winter, I guess, in Memphis, but still. Yeah. It feels very cold. And this is Brimley just giving his powerhouse performance. This is Brimley so steely, so still giving that like facade mm -hmm. of avuncular, friendly, protective kind of familiarity. This is another one of those scenes that made me miss the X-Files. It is an X-Files yeah, scene. Definitely. That's very astute. That's mm. exactly what it is. That's exactly the performance that he's giving, in yeah. fact. Yes. <laughs> That's very, very good. Yeah. Then Mitch returns to the office. He is called in in front of everyone who is gathered there in the, the big boardroom that they have and told that he passed the bar with the second highest score. Pretty good, pretty good. Tension just keeps ratcheting up that night. Here he I do think Gene Triplehorn is giving us something good that look of abject horror on her face as she's trying to be cool and chill is yeah. pretty 
unsettling. Yeah, no, that works. And then we go out for dinner, and this is where he confesses to the girl on the beach. And this is, I think, such an interesting part of his characterization, because mm-hmm. what Mitch really resents, and this, I think, does tie very yep. directly back to growing up poor... He resents the idea that anyone has power over him. Mm -hmm. He does not want to be driven by anyone, doesn't want it to be Ed Harris, doesn't want it to be the firm, and doesn't want it to be the specter of his infidelity in the Cayman Islands. So he defangs that whole situation. He removes that blackmail potential Mm. by just telling her the truth. And if, yeah, if she's already somewhat thinned out by the news, by the the conflict at the firm, this just simplifies her character still further, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. She leaves him in the restaurant and we cut out from there to the partners uh, telling Avery that Mitch has a brother. We're just increasing the tension in every direction. Meanwhile, Mitch and Tammy are playing switch the briefcase in the elevator so that he Love can that sequence. pass paperwork to her. He meets with a client who complains that he's being overbilled and maybe Mitch sees a loophole. Yeah. He then goes to the dog racing track and baits Ed Harris into a very public bit of indiscretion. <laughs> Saying uh-huh. way too much <laughs> yep. right here. But then we get this great line that crystallizes the entire conflict as it's surrounding Mitch when Mitch says, if we follow the law, it just might save us. Yeah. That, that is John Grisham's boomer liberalism. That's that is John Grisham's belief in the structures and the machinery of the state. Mm. He genuinely believes that that's true. And though we might not agree with it, we in kind the of script, envy yeah. the ability to believe in it. Sure, maybe, right? yeah. It is interesting, though, now that you've mentioned The X-Files, I'm just thinking about this film in conversation with The X-Files, which is just beginning at the same time. Right, it had to have been. Yeah. yeah. And how The X-Files is looking ahead to the millennium, is looking ahead to our mm. loss of faith in these structures, mm-hmm. and how Grisham still feels very safe and traditional yeah. at this time. Yeah. Wow. Unable to forgive Mitch for his indiscretion, Abby quits her teaching job and makes plans to visit her parents, but... Getting word of their separation, Avery visits her at work, weirdly holding onto the fence as he's talking to her here and offering her a trip to Grand Cayman. She declines, but then becomes aware of the fact that he cannot... This is a made-up rule. Did you know this? This rule that you cannot go diving and then fly within 24 hours? Oh. This is made up. <laughs> this is not true in real life. Really? Yes, this is I not, did not true know in that. real life at all. I immediately was like, oh, it makes sense. The bends and whatever. Doesn't but, it? Yeah. It's <laughs> such a fantastic little bit of creation. To force this conflict. I absolutely love how that works out. So Abby decides to go separately to Grand Cayman by herself in order to suitably distract Avery Mm -hmm. so that we can do what must be done. Then we get the sequence with Ray being released from prison, which is, again, just great Ed Harris and David Strathairn through all of this sequence. I think we have them tailing him on the Greyhound bus, having let him go and apparently just driven off into the night. Uh They then tail him all the way to the diner, which is when we get the reveal of Elvis, which is cinematically so deft. Yeah. Nobody says a thing, and yet the audience is left in no doubt as to who this character is. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have to credit Holly Hunter for that, for (laughs) the precision of her delivery on those lines. She manages to sketch this character so beautifully. But this is a very confident piece of storycraft, I think. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, this is lovely. And I love that we're giving these women something to do, like to really do. It is striking how effective they both are Mm -hmm. and and how yeah, great and resourceful and scrappy. Yep. Tammy is and then to give Abby the the you know the emotional heart of the conflict I suppose because mm-hmm. that's what happens next she surprises Avery in Grand Cayman and they kind of navigate around each other in a way that I find 
really fascinating and, and honestly quite bewitching. I think that Gene Hackman is so good I through the sequence. I would watch this movie too. Yeah. Like whatever whatever this is, I would I would watch as well. It's very still. Did it remind you a little bit of Lost in Translation? Or at least Hackman's performance is kind of giving older, sadder Bill Murray performance? Sure. I like Hackman more, though. Bill Murray never had that twinkle in his eye in the same way. You are not a big Bill Murray fan, I think it's fair to say. Not in that in that mode yeah yeah yeah, exactly Mm -hmm. sure no but you're right it's the ability to communicate that charm and that confidence and that power but also that yeah that regret and that Mm self-loathing almost but not quite and also like being disarmed but like willfully like laying down his arms i suppose yeah and just making himself vulnerable ah is that beautiful how you read the line when they end up back at the condo yeah. When he has that moment of lucidity, he has been drugged by Abby yep. and he has that moment of lucidity. What are you doing here? Yeah. Does that feel to you like he is, you know, descending into sleep and he's just lashing out at, at you know, whatever is around him that he is feeling just generally fearful? Or do you take that to be proof that he has suspected exactly this progression from the beginning, that, that he knows yeah. to some extent why she is here. I think more the latter. I, again, there, I feel that Hackman is giving us in the performance this like increasing sense of both dread and denial for the consequences of his actions. And I think this is that moment where he knows, he, where he can't be in denial anymore, I think. Or at least that, yeah, the very terminal consequences of his actions are going to catch up with him. In the very near future, the very that he near future. feels that this is coming to an end. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I get that sense too. And and I'm not sure if that's a product of the plot or if that's a product just of, of Gene Hackman being incredible yeah. on screen. Hopefully yeah. both. Either way, this is a fantastic scene with Abby lulling Avery to sleep, even with the kiss, which should maybe feel gross or transgressive or, or it should maybe feel something, but is a very genuine moment of human connection. I think between the two of them. I, I think to some extent, I love what she says to Mitch later when she tells him, I, I think that you should know that Avery was decent. Yes. And what she say, he was corrupt and he was haunted yeah. and he was sad, but he was decent. Yeah. Which is kind of contrasting him with Mitch, right? Who is so good and so honorable and so true, but kind of an asshole about it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. From there, we're really just into the progression of the plot. We're into the movement yeah. of the banker's boxes. We're into the photocopying. We're into all the phone calls that have to be made. We're into the weird fax that goes oh, to yeah. Wolfram Brimley. Oh, yeah, but goes unnoticed and rolls underneath the fax under- machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of a comedy of errors aspect uh-huh. there. Yeah, he's overhearing the phone conversation between Tammy and Abby, so now he knows what's happening. They're trying to get uh, Avery on the phone. The whole thing is just unspooling, yeah. and it's tense, But there is maybe one strand too many here in terms of keeping our focus and keeping everything locked Mm. down. It's a little difficult to understand exactly where everyone is, how close we are to our victory condition, as it were. Yeah. I like Abby sneaking back in into the bathroom, putting the robe on like she's not been gone at all. That's so terrific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also the way that Gene Hackman plays his understanding that, in fact, this is not the case that this yes. is it is not what it seems when he stops her from taking the robe off when she's about to disrobe and slip into uh-huh. bed with him again and he stops her because he knows yeah that's good stuff it's really good a really beautiful really human moment human right moment there. Yeah, yeah i love those yeah that's good. so back in memphis we have mitch sneaking into avery's office to print out all of those bills Devisher finds the fax, I guess, that has rolled under the fax machine, mm-hmm. realizes the connection, realizes that the brother has been released from prison, realizes that Mitch has made a deal. Luckily, Mitch manages to escape through uh, Chekhov's truck in the alleyway. 
Yeah. That we foreshadow much, yep. much earlier in the truck film. Truck full of cotton. Just a truck full sure. of cotton right there in the alleyway. <laughs> Which I guess makes a certain amount of sense when you think that the office across the way is called the Cotton Building. Right. Exactly. So yeah. I guess something. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, this is where we cut out to uh, to Ed Harris, to Terrence being uh, chewed out on the phone by his boss in a very like classic noir scene. The voice on the phone there is Sidney Pollock. He's <laughs> just chewing out Ed Harris. Just doing the Gordon Cole thing. Like <laughs> you remind me of a small Mexican chihuahua. <laughs> So we have uh, Tom Cruise really taking in the sights here of Memphis, going to Mud Island, the local uh, tourist attraction, I guess, getting seen there by Kay so that the assassins can track him. There's a lot. There's and a lot if happening. this film is too long, it is perhaps 10 minutes yeah. too long in this terminal series of action sequences, yes. in fact. We get the extended foot chase. We get the... Uh, being trapped in whatever that building the, that's the, under construction the, is. Yeah, plus the whole going to the museum yeah, on yeah. the boat thing. Yeah, there's a lot here. Too there, much. There really is. Mm -hmm. We have the showdown with both the assassin and with Wilford Brimley, with Devisher in that building, and both are killed, which, credit to Mitch McDear, he kind of just takes in stride. He kind of just like shakes it off. And then goes to meet with the mafia guys. He looks like a sweaty, nervous wreck when he gets up there, though. And yeah. he's got like a black eye forming. I don't know. It's I, yeah. such an atypical Cruise performance, isn't it? I mean, I feel like I've seen him hang above a precipice with sweat dripping to <laughs> no, the floor before. not yet you haven't. <laughs> you will again in another three years. <laughs> but not yet you But haven't. you're right. So far, no, no, atypical. Not this part. The part when he goes to meet with the Morelli brothers. And he is, yeah, so... He's doing a version of the fast-talking, confident guy, right? He's doing a version of, of that Tom Cruise archetype that we've seen before. Mm -hmm. But you're right. He's so sweaty and disheveled and just does not look well. Yeah. He does not look handsome in no. that moment. No. He looks like and a guy who is nervous. clinging onto the edge by his fingernails. Which he is. Which he is. Yeah. But it's a much less polished, mm -hmm. much less self-confident performance from I Cruise. And all the better so for it. so much better. Yeah. 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 I really do. It makes me much more in the character's corner. Yeah. And the way if that he came he... in with a swagger, then I think that I'd be disappointed. Yes, yeah, particularly like after killing two men in a basement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this really is a gamble. Like he's, it's true. It might not work. This yeah. might not work. Yeah. And obviously, we flag a little bit, you know, the connection with uh, how the uh, FBI took down Al Capone right. in real life. It's obviously not that dissimilar. Mm -hmm. It really works for me. And I think there might be a specificity in the performance of the Moralto brothers. I think I just said Morelli brothers a moment ago. <laughs> the okay. Moralto brothers here uh, <laughs> are, are, guys. You know, you know. are mafia boys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, they are. Yes, it's central casting. And yes, it's kind of mm. predictable. But the performance in the moment is great. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that is basically the climax of the film, getting yeah. these guys to agree to unlock their invoices so that the <laughs> firm can be taken down. They're not touching the mafia nope. at all, but the firm is going to be driven all the way out of business and Mitch does not have to violate his ethics. He gets right. to remain a good man. He gets to keep his oath, but also do the right thing. It's a really satisfying ending. It is, yeah. That then gets a little bit flabby because we have to do the showdown with Ed Harris with just Terrence, a little yeah. bit. And then we have to do the reconciliation with Abby, which I think is not a great scene, honestly. Yeah, it's it's a little bit thin. It starts nice. Like, I love when he asks twice, have I lost you? Yeah. Or did I lose you? Or whatever it was. But then when she finally says, how could you lose me? Question mark. I'm ready for her to say something else. 
And instead, it just kind of like they hug and a face. Oh, no, that's the end of the weirdest thing that she says. I've loved you forever before I ever knew you. I loved the idea of you. Oh, Abby, sweetheart, that's not a good relationship. (laughs) That's not good. (laughs) That's that's a red flag. You have that's not okay. That's not romantic. Yeah. That's dysfunctional. It's weird. Yeah. You're right. It's kind of, but you know what? We can disagree about this. You can like the Abby scene. And I let yeah. it slide earlier. Sure. I really did. But I really like the Ray and Tammy scene. <laughs> I really do. I'm you thinking should. about it now in my head and I'm liking I like your crooked <laughs> smile. It's good. I would follow them for a sequel movie. No trouble. <laughs> Their spinoff show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like living on a boat, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Because there is that weird implication, right? When he's talking to the mafia guys, there is the weird implication that that boat will just be out there forever carrying a quarter ton of documentation that is evidence of their wrongdoings yeah. and malfeasance. And if anything happens to Mitch McTeer at any point, that boat will put into dock and suddenly these guys will go to prison. I just put together... That that wasn't a metaphor on why he said. In fact, I'd say I'm exactly like a cargo no, ship. It. I I'm get exactly it now. Like. It's it's okay. Yeah. I get it. I get it. So good news, Tammy uh, Ray. Uh, you live on a boat now forever. <laughs> good job. I mean, not like I wouldn't that's go and so live on a boat bad. forever with Holly Hunter. I'd miss oh, yeah. you, but you know, you'd I'd understand. Probably go with David Strathairn too. I think that's okay. <laughs> We're gonna need a bigger boat. And on that note, we're going to conclude this discussion we of did it. the firm. I think this is a great film. I agree. It, it's very consistent, really, I think, generally speaking, including its very consistent flaws. You know, we get some thin characterization from yeah. Abby, and we do get this editing problem all the way through. It's just not as tight as it should be. And this is the kind of movie these thrillers really need to yeah. be tight in order to, to maintain lines of clarity and lines of conflict. So... It's not perhaps an all-time great, no. but it's way up there, and I enjoyed mm-hmm. it a great deal. Let's turn our attention, shall we, to the big list. And nice. I'm going to throw out a very bold stance here. I think that this film is right below Rain Man. Interesting. I definitely enjoyed this more than I enjoyed Rain Man. Oh, interesting. Does that make it better? I don't know. But I was I was thinking in my head, not knowing what the list was exactly, that this was going to be somewhere around Rain Man a few good men territory. So sticking it in between those two, I feel comfortable. I if I can. Yeah, I, I mean, I, here's the thing. Above. No, I, I think that Rain Man is a more polished and complete film than this is. But Rain Man is also a much less ambitious film than this is. True. It's just trying to do less. And you're right. Probably, yeah, the highs here might outstrip the highs of Rain Man. So I'm happy to to put it there. Is there a conversation to be had about it going above a few good men or? Is that really a hard line for you? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think A Few Good Men was better. Okay. Yeah. Then we'll put it in right there. The new number three on the list, Beneath Top Gun and A Few Good Men, The Firm from 1993. That. that was an absolute blast discussing it. Guys, The Last Star in Hollywood is a Next Word production, and it is possible only because of your incredibly generous support. Mm-hmm. If you would like bonus episodes of this podcast, including Last Action Hero and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and any minute now, gone in 60 seconds, <laughs> yep. because the logic of our bonus episodes is impossible to discern. 
then you can head on over to patreon.com slash next word. Pledge your support, listen to those bonus episodes, mm. cast your vote for what bonus episodes we're going to cover in the future, and mm. come and hang out with us on our fancy schmancy Discord, That's which right. is so much fun. And we also have those laid back insider podcasts too available to the patrons where we we're do. just talking about whatever we want to. Most recently, the Oscar nominations. I always forget to mention those, but you're you do. right. Yeah, those are my favorites. Those are monthly plus. We do at least one a month and mm-hmm. oftentimes more than mm-hmm. that because we just have a good time. And those are completely unedited and we play games sometimes yeah. at the end of those podcasts and just, yeah, talk about whatever's time. on our mind. And yeah, we just... Spent an hour, in fact, talking about the newest Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. This was before we knew exactly it who was, was going to be It was right before the nominations yes. were announced, yes. But talking about the awards season as mm-hmm. a whole and uh, our response to some of the films of 2023. That's so right. that was a really fun conversation. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, would you like to thank, by name, our superstar patrons? Yes, I would love to give our heartfelt thanks to Leslie Skipa, Kimberly Bear, Art Kilmer, Louise and Dallas, Megan Lauder, Phoebe, and Self on a Shelf. Thank you so much. The very best of people. The best of people. When we talk about a stacked cast, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about that list of people. It's true. The greatest you'll ever meet. The people in your I would life. invite to my Oscar party. Right? <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do all this without you. And we couldn't do next week's show, which I promise is going to be a ton of fun. Next week, we move to November of 1994 and the baroque gothic weirdness that is neil jordan's adaptation of anne rice's interview with the vampire which apparently is a tv show right now too people are saying good things about it on threads everything is a tv show all tom cruise films i believe that there is in fact a tv show of the firm that i didn't even mention (laughs) because everything is getting readapted for prestige tv formats (laughs) next week interview with the vampire we will i think probably record that in costume what do you think oh i love that yeah all right let's do that (laughs) (laughs) until then guys thanks so much for listening we'll talk to you again soon until then take care bye